see more innovation in packaging and processing at Pack Expo International than anywhere else in the world. It's the show that defines where the industry is headed, with the solutions that define where your business can go. Discover cutting-edge packaging technology, processing equipment, new materials, sustainable solutions, supply chain resources, and much, much more. You'll walk away with innovative solutions to challenges big and small. Register at PackExpoInternational.com. You're listening to Unpacked with PMMI, where we share the latest packaging and processing industry insights, research, and innovations to help you advance your business. Hi, and welcome to another edition of Unpacked with PMMI. I'm your host, Sean Riley, and today we are going remote to PMMI's annual meeting in Cincinnati to talk with Michael Steep, Executive Director of Stanford Engineering Center for Disruptive Technology and Digital Cities and former Senior Vice President of Global Business Operations at Park Xerox. Mike has advised clients from Airbus, BMW, and Google on how to stay ahead of the inevitable disruptions and hiccups that new technologies will cause your business. Today, he is sharing practical tips for fueling innovative ideas powered by new technology with OEM Magazine Editor-in-Chief, Stephanie Neal. Stephanie, the podcast is yours. Okay, thank you, Sean. I am here with Mike at the PMMI annual meeting in Cincinnati, and he is giving a presentation here on uh, the future of business, the more diverse than you imagine, and it's coming fast. So, Mike, you have a long history in product creation and launches. Can you give us a quick recap of some of your major accomplishments? Well, I introduced the first software for the IBM PC. Uh, so I am indeed part of the ancien regime, the ancient regime mm-hmm. over time, uh, back in the uh, early days. And in addition to that, I also launched the first digital camera, um, consumer digital camera at Apple. It was a failure um, <laughs> because it was priced too too high, but it was the very first. It was called the Quick Take and had 16 slides uh, of which you could only connected up to a TV. You couldn't do anything else with the photos. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> so were you involved in the R&D with that or were you involved just taking it to market? Um, I was involved in both because the model in Silicon Valley at that time was to integrate. Mm-hmm. So if you didn't have good technical experience, even if you didn't have a technical degree, you had to have the experience. You couldn't really be in product marketing. And so that was the primary rule those days. And in addition to that, we also, uh, at Microsoft, launched the Azure platform and software as a service, which was a a complete transition of the software business. So I was involved Mm -hmm. in doing that as well. So I've seen um, quite a number of transitions, and I participated directly in a lot of those things. And so your background to get involved in all of these very transitional technologies, are you an engineer by <laughs> trade or? No, that's the funny thing. I'm not an engineer by trade. Really? No. Well, I was among the first uh, MBAs hired by Hewlett Packard. In fact, I was the first class and they didn't know what to do with us because we had business degrees. Mm-hmm. So they called us marketing engineers uh, back in 1980 mm-hmm. when I came to California. And the whole objective of HP at that time was to train people, even laymen, to be able to use the products. So you had to come down the learning curve very, very rapidly. And so you used the products to understand what they could do. Uh, that was a rule that was considered to be the way you learn technology in Silicon Valley, at least in the first 10 years. Yeah. It's changed quite a bit. And so now you're the executive director and founder of Stanford Engineering's Disruptive Technology and Digital Cities Program. That's a mouthful. Yes. Yeah, I was just going to say that. 
<laughs> yeah, it's a mouthful. But what the program does is it takes the 400 technology labs at Stanford, crossing everything from advanced material sciences to persuasive technology to uh, machine intelligence, artificial intelligence. And then what we do is we figure out of all those various labs, which are most practical. And then we hook them up with 30 corporate affiliate members, each member in a different industry. Okay. And then when we hook them up, the objective is to find a way to build new business models and new growth opportunities. So we're addressing a major problem, and that is that um, a lot of companies are having a real hard time with innovation. And what they don't understand, at least most of them don't understand, is that the dollar investment has shifted away from corporate R&D to outside R&D that's performed by you know, venture capital, yeah. private companies, and so forth. And the whole world has changed. And so the innovation has shifted outside from the corporation outside into 10,000 startups. It's, a, right. it's rather interesting. $300 billion in investment last year versus $200 billion in um, you know, general science investment on R&D on the part of, of corporations worldwide. So you're really trying to connect. I mean, in the academic world, there's a, there, it's almost like an incubator. You've got yeah. a lot of startups. You've got a lot of cutting edge technology. You're trying yeah. to sort of marry that with corporations I that am. have the money and the vision, but don't have the maybe the expertise, expertise to execute on the, the idea. The biggest problem is culture. Culture trumps innovation. And so even if you have the money, you may not have the expertise, but let's say you do. There's still also a cultural problem and that people um, really do not like change. I mean, to be explicit, they don't like change. And so when you start compounding all this, that is the primary reason why a lot of companies have failed to adopt new technology and stay alive. So you also advise executives on how to best implement and monetize emerging technology breakthroughs. So how does that work? Someone calls you up and says, I have <laughs> well, a haptic of, sensor and I have no idea what to do with it. Please help. It's sort of like group therapy. Um, <laughs> yeah. You know, so, uh, they are indeed sometimes therapy sessions because the biggest problem we've got, the top three problems with innovation inside the corporation is one, believe it or not, they're not aware of a lot of the disruptive technologies being developed. So they don't even see it. And that's in their own surveys that we've done. We've done a survey with 400 uh, CEOs on innovation. 94% say that innovation is critical to their company's future. Um, but they point out that they have a 95% failure rate on new technology development, which is actually a higher failure rate than venture. And the number one reason, they don't know about the new technologies because they're not part of that world. Number two reason, risk averse. Um, mm -hmm. They can't figure out how to uh, bridge the cultural divide, so to speak. And so uh, what we're trying to do is address that issue. So when I talk to uh, a CEO, what I do primarily is to listen, first of all, about what they see as their problem, and then try to understand how much they really are aware of, of the technology and, you know, that is uh, being developed for their industry. And that's mm -hmm. what we're doing today. Today, what we're doing with our, our keynote presentation is we're going to show examples of why the world has changed on the innovation side and what the results of that are for consumer packaged goods, process, and so forth, all the way mm -hmm. through what PMI um, represents. So how do you define a disruptive innovation when it comes to a technology breakthrough? Great question. <laughs> the way we look at disruptive innovation and technology is it has to fundamentally present two things. One is um, a new value proposition that hasn't been tried before mm -hmm. uh, that, that everybody likes to buy into, mm -hmm. i.e., for example, the introduction of the uh, iPhone uh, mm -hmm. when Nokia was the dominant uh, player. 
Uh, and two, it has to fundamentally change the business model, the economics. What's really interesting is that on the cover of Forbes magazine back in 2007, uh, the cover was Nokia. And the question that Forbes had on the magazine was, who will ever catch the cell phone king? Mm-hmm. That was the question. Mm-hmm. And then in the summer of that year, Steve Jobs introduced the iPhone. And then if you look at the revenue of, of Apple and the revenue of Nokia, the revenue of Apple just takes off right after the introduction of the iPhone and, and does monumental growth. And the revenue of Nokia takes off in the opposite direction. And within a few years, the company disappears um, in the acquisition by Microsoft. So this is a great example of what I mean by disruptive technology. I don't mean it's incremental. I mean, it changes the whole value proposition. It wasn't just a cell phone anymore. It was an entire lifestyle of entertainment and connection and communication. And if you don't understand the value proposition, you're likely to fail being able to address it. Because once a new technology is introduced, it's very, very hard to compete effectively against it. It's like a surfing waves where you have waves of technology that just keep coming at you uh, in the same product area. So is it a matter of just functionality, like Steve Jobs just putting way more technology expertise and features and functions, or what? What, no, what was what, the difference in the in terms of lifestyle? Well, um, well, there's two questions there. Uh, first of all, how did he actually conceive of the iPhone? And this is really important because he was kicked out of Apple. Mm-hmm. He was fired. Mm-hmm. Called it walking the desert with his last twenty five million dollars and his guru. He brought an Indian guru in, uh, into Woodside advise him. So here he's walking the desert. But while he was walking the desert, he was uh, on the board of Pixar, Mm -hmm. a radical new entertainment media, and Disney. And so he spent his time outside the traditional model, learning more about everything from entertainment to licensing rights. And so when he came back to Apple from the outside experience, the first thing he did was change the name of the company Mm -hmm. from Apple Computer to Apple. And so he wanted to create a platform for entertainment. So he had almost 40% personnel change on the R&D side that he instituted. And he had to acquire software because he didn't have any software to run entertainment. So he acquired iTunes. So, you know, that's the first part, the value proposition. So it's the outside-in model versus trying to find a new market for existing products and services. Okay. Instead, what you're doing is focusing on the problem and then using your expertise to develop new products and services. It's a very different model than most companies pursue. And it's very hard to understand. So we're sitting in the middle of the manufacturing industry, packaging yeah. and processing. Yeah. Can you pinpoint some technologies that can, could be disruptive for oh, yes. our industry? Uh-huh. For example, there's a new company called Robotique, and they're doing robots as a service, but they're using a you know, completely new technology that allows the robot to learn on their own when they encounter problems. So robots today in manufacturing are relatively dumb. Mm-hmm. They have to be programmed to do exactly what you want them to do in a manufacturing context. But with uh, Robotique, um, the robot can learn on the job without human interaction. Mm -hmm. That's really important. So it's hooking up AI and new sensor technology on the arms of the robot to be able to feel its way. Mm -hmm. So it takes advantage of a new type of technology called uh, a new type of sensor technology that can be wrapped around an arm and allow for it to be connected up to artificial intelligence. So if I have a cup of coffee on the table, um, it can actually learn what to do when it encounters a cup of coffee. I don't have to tell it. So that's going to dramatically change the way we think about manufacturing. And it's extremely dexterous, more so than a human hand. What's your time frame for that, though? Because we're a little bit of a slow moving industry sometimes. (laughs) Well, yes. And the company 
company was just funded and is developing the first set of products. It'll take about 18 to 36 months. But there's also digital manufacturing, Scandit, mm-hmm. for example, that has had new types of digital manufacturing software for setup that's already out there. And mm-hmm. then we have something called the continuously connected value chain that's being developed by BMW and others where they can actually pinpoint the performance of a part in a car as it's driving and then relate it right back to their headquarters uh, where they do manufacturing to change the design aspects of it. And then there is the ability to pick up packaging uh, smart sensor technology where you can pick up the inventory and trucks by through the road so you can actually track what is happening with inventory as it moves through the value chain so all of these technologies are being introduced and they're being adopted and it, although your industry is slow someone's going to see the opportunity and as soon as they do they're going to start the thing is though when you talk about you know digital manufacturing and you talk about maybe connecting things you know through a supply chain or being yeah. able to that requires um, a lot of collaboration and connectivity. So it does indeed. So who orchestrates that? Where does the platform ah. come to connect everything? Well, the new sensor technology, they're called stretchable sensors uh-huh. that are being developed. And you can actually break the sensors. They come in a disc. You break them up like a like you're breaking bread. And you have a little wirely connector that enables them to connect to a Wi-Fi network. So you stretch them out like a hairnet. And you can put them into any kind of material, metal. You can put it into packaging, plastics, and other types of material. And then mm-hmm. you can program them from afar once they're in the material. So the stretchy sensors automatically connect into a network. So the networking is on any industry standard networking protocol. So Wi-Fi, for example, you don't have to do anything special. Right now, uh, Boeing and Airbus are testing the sensors on the, on the metal wing of an airplane to see if it can detect hairline cracks so they don't have to take the aircraft off of service to x-ray them. And the results are extremely favorable, getting uh, the ability now to identify micro cracks better than what the x-ray machine could do while the plane is flying. So what, what's the end game for these things? Is it quality control? Is it productivity? Is it to make more money? It's all three of those things. The first thing is the sensor itself it has an 80% cost reduction. So it's prolific. What's going on now is that, uh, and this isn't off-the-shelf sensors, this is new technology, it is a massive reduction in the cost for producing sensors. And we can now print little Wi-Fi antennas directly into any kind of material. So uh, we could print it right into where the sensors are in the material and then do and have connectivity mm-hmm. set up. Same thing with smart tags for packaging and process. Mm-hmm. So that means that the more the stuff begins to proliferate, it will start generating an enormous amount of data about our value chain. And that's to be continuously connected every stage of the way you have to have technology that can automatically connect and you don't have to program. So another technology that's being developed is neuromorphic technology. uses human neurons, prints it into a little chip, and then it decides when to transmit data uh, when it's in a sensor array. So Mm -hmm. for example, you don't have to wait for a network. You can have the information stored locally and then it will transmit when the network's available. So all these technologies are have one thing in common. It's called convergence. That's the big difference in technology today. Everything is coming together, being combined, and as a result, you're getting completely new solutions that you couldn't do before. In the past, we used to focus on PCs or software or machine intelligence as though they were separate areas. Mm -hmm. And they are, but what's going on today is convergence where hardware and software technologies are combining and the advancements are just huge in this area. So switching gears to, because I know you're working on smart cities. 
digital cities. We don't call digital. them smart. We actually think, I'm sorry, but we actually <laughs> think smart cities are pretty dumb. What's the difference? Digital cities are cities that where private corporations are developing the commercial markets in the metropolitan area. Okay. Smart cities generally are referred to as government-driven city governments that are trying to figure out how to do policy and archiving and other types of technology development. But if you actually look at the results of smart cities having served on the Smart City London Board and worked with the city of Palo Alto and others, um, they don't have either the resources or the expertise to be able to really to understand what to do with the technology. And so there's a lag. So what we do is we focus instead in working with the corporations, with Microsoft, with Amazon, with the startup community, because of the top five tech companies, they spend 70% of their R&D budget focused on products and services for cities. And I mean, citizens of cities, not the government. So that number far outweighs any kind of investment in spending that's being done by the government. And in fact, one of the big problems these days is the government is not keeping up with the tech. It's being deployed. And we see that in our headlines with social media. So, uh, you know, all the, what I call the pyramid problem or the iceberg problem where you, you have a snippet of a problem on privacy and then there's this enormous iceberg underneath the waterline of where that data is being used that people simply don't know. Individuals don't know, co corporations do. So government is so far behind in trying to understand how to actually put in policy. And then the closer you get to Washington, the more difficult it becomes actually to understand. And you've got cities in Palo, you know, like Palo Alto, right in the center of Silicon Valley, where you cannot get a cell phone signal. Something as basic as that, because the city council has decided not to approve cell phone towers. And they have, I don't know how many CEOs of tech companies that are resident in the city. And it's consistent. The traffic patterns there are the same technology that was used in 1965. Well, what is the, what are we trying to do? Are we trying to improve quality of life? I think I read an article that you wrote that mm -hmm. talked about mobility as a service. Yes. Is, is that, when we're talking about digital cities, are we... We're trying to understand what's going on. It's sort of like if you look at our children and our grandchildren, how addicted they are to devices and the kind of information they're willing to share, you can multiply that a hundred times, a thousand fold, 10,000 fold with the citizens in a city. And so the very first thing is a lot of city government simply doesn't understand what's actually happening in their own city and how people are using technology. And so the traditional methods of how to actually meet citizen demands are no longer there. Um, and so the citizens want a better quality of life. They want more connection. They want to be able to talk to their friends, to socialize, and they want to have a reasonably easy commute doing all that. Mm -hmm. But they also want signal. They want to be able to have their devices um, as they're moving through the city. And so corporations have realized the value of that. So Facebook and others, good, bad, or indifferent, however you feel about it, they are deploying the technologies now and they're trying to find, you know, from a profit point of view, the best use of that data, not, not necessarily in the interests of the people who are offering the data. Um, doesn't this present a security or a privacy issue when we are collecting all of this Oh yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. And I call it the theater of privacy. Theater of privacy because essentially we have all the government actors acting as though we have privacy and then the reality of it is at the corporate level is we really don't. Information is being freely shared. If you look at all of the data breaches as an example of that, I think there was one recently with social security number the other day. I would say that almost every American has been compromised at least three times come Sunday on their data usage. Fortunately, there hasn't been a dramatic catastrophic event as a mm -hmm. result of that. But the security issues are extreme. And our cybersecurity technology that we're deploying 
is very archaic. It really doesn't address the issues. So for example, if, if there's a something as simple as a privacy breach and I as a citizen want to do something about it for my own data, my recourse is to sue a company. And the legal folks do not have any audit trails. So there are audit tools inside of Facebook and other companies that allow them to understand where the data was breached, but they will not share that information. It's almost like a corporate secret. And so if we can't even find out where the data was breached, it becomes very difficult to do anything about it. And so that's why I go back to the first statement that the governments are, are simply not keeping up with yeah. the policies to understand how to fix this problem. And a lot of the solutions that are out there today, like cybersecurity solutions, are compartmentalized. They, don't, they just work in their one area and they don't think about all the other major issues. And that was the point of the mobility study that we, we shared. The mobility study basically takes a look at how data is actually being used in a modern context versus the way we thought about it, let's say, when the iPhone was first. Well, Mike, it's an exciting time, <laughs> um, but what's the next step or maybe the first step to get an organization to the point where it begins to adopt creative approaches to technology and innovation and disruption? Well, I think the first objective is to become self-aware. And awareness is absolutely the most important piece of all of this. And you can't move on to become creative and do all these other things if you first don't know actually what is happening with the technology. And part of that is you've got to be a really good social networker. You have to be able to comfortably reach out to experts in the technology space and just simply understand what is happening. And that's the number one problem with a lot of the corporates. You do not have the networking skills or even the motivation to reach out when they could. And so they become the targets of a lot of the startup companies. And so, you know, they are facing kind of an unknown quantity of, uh, you know, when they are not engaging to understand what's going on in their own industry. So number one, awareness. Once you have awareness and you can start building some technical expertise and you have to decide how much of it you want to bring in versus how much you want to keep out and simply do as an investment experiments. It used to be called fast fail, you know, where you do small investments, see very quickly if they succeed or not. And that methodology is, has proven to be, uh, you know, not as effective as uh, people thought. Okay. Well, thank you so much for your expertise, Mike. Thank you. Appreciate it. And thank uh, you also and all the, the people who are going to be uh, listening to the podcast. Please rate, review, and subscribe. To do that, go to the iTunes podcast or Spotify app on your phone and search for Unpacked with PMMI.